0: Hey, folks, today's Throwback Thursday episode is a little different than usual. And by the way, I'm your host, Mason Gravely, but not today, actually, because uh, if you didn't know, uh, the company I work for, Athletic Brewing, non-alcoholic craft beer, definitely go check it out. We produced a documentary recently, uh, and it is now available to watch for the world. We were on tour for the last month, um, all of April and a part of May. We took the film on tour around the country and we had uh, big names, uh, you know trail runners and mountaineers come in uh, host the event. And so for this event, for two of our events uh, was famed trail runner Dylan Bowman. Um, he was the host of this event in Denver. I was there helping coordinate the event, but Dylan was the one that did uh, the Q&A with our film's star, Jason Hardrath. And the film, if you haven't heard, is called Journey to 100, and it's about Jason Hardrath's journey to climb 100 mountains uh, to be his 100th fastest known time. Um, And what's so cool about this whole thing is it all started with an interview here on Adventure Sports Podcast, so uh, it just grew from there. Jason's story was so incredible. His feet was so uh, admirable and so huge that we just couldn't help but make a documentary about it at Athletic Brewing. So um, we got connected with Athletic and it just kind of snowballed from there. We produced a whole film. So if you haven't watched it yet, it's half an hour. It's on YouTube. Just literally look up Journey to 100. It's on Athletic Brewing's page. It is fantastic. But after that, we showed the film in each city we went to, we had about a half hour to an hour Q&A um, with Jason, an interview and then an audience Q&A. And so this is one of those. And that is this one's from Denver specifically. It was such an amazing crowd. Uh, I, I had a great time. It was great kind of to be back home and to be back where this all started. You know, the, the podcast was born and raised, as I like to say, in the Rocky Mountains uh, in Colorado. And so it was nice to be back home and see the community come out. A lot of the listeners came out uh, in the area, which is awesome. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in. And if you'd like to learn more about Dylan Bowman, he hosts a podcast, Free Trail, uh, and as well as Jason. Jason is on a ton of podcasts. He's got the film, of course, Um, but they're always both doing really cool things. So I hope you enjoy. And uh, let's go ahead and jump in.
1: become. You can only teach what you learn. And you're a teacher. And you screened this for, what, 500 kids in K-Falls, including your students. So maybe expand on uh, that philosophy. You can only teach what you become. And and tell us what it was like to to show this to the group of kids back home.
2: Well, I guess two things come to mind. Um, There's an old Chinese proverb. It goes, no stream can rise higher than its source. Um, And that's always kind of bothered me and also kind of guided me that you should pursue the higher places, both philosophically and, well, literally. Um, And along with that, you know, if you look at any hero's journey, as as Americans, we tend to focus on the slaying of the dragon um, because dragons are where the gold is. But the essential part of that story that we forget sometimes is that then the hero brings the gold back to the village and shares it with the people there. And I think that's what drives me to be a teacher is that I find a huge amount of gratification personally and I see the importance of creating those aha moments for other people, just a new way of seeing themselves, a new way of seeing the world. Um, to believe that something was possible that they didn't think was possible, um, and to make progress in their life and, and feel good about themselves because of it.
1: So what was it like uh, showing the film to the kids?
2: Oh, man. Um, so as soon as the film stopped playing, uh, there was no like conversation like this. It went right into question and answer. And it was super awesome to listen to it go from silence to... 400 kids with their hands up with the pick-me-pick-me look on their face. Um, yeah, I mean. Is there a sense of pride there, though? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if pride is the right word. I can't put my finger on it. But there's, there's a joy there, yeah. right? Like, ah, to the audience for me that mattered the most. You know, no offense to y'all, but you know, um, to, to, to kids, it, it meant something. Oh. So when you
1: interact with a kid who reminds you of yourself, you know, who high energy, has a hard time focusing, maybe ADHD, as you mentioned in the film, how do you interface with them based on your experience? Do you identify with them, and how do you, uh, how do you hope to influence their lives?
2: I mean, there's always a, an art to it, um, and every kid is different. It's like there's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, but when I noticed that, I definitely remember my own hardships with um, impulsive behavior and, and you know, wrecking friendships and you know, always being the kid in trouble at school. Um, and I remember how I would always beat myself up first. It would be like slow motion where I'd do the thing and my mind would realize like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And I'd be like, oh man, like this person's gonna hate me and she's gonna think that about me and then my parents are gonna hear about it. and So I'd already be playing out sort of the, the future in my mind in that split second, and then it would all come true. And so it was like this double whammy, right, where I'm already beating myself up, and then the world comes unglued just as I predicted. Yeah. And so when I catch those moments where I can see that kid that did the thing that was totally wrong or totally unsafe, but I can see I can see that moment in their eyes where they're like, oh. I'm like, come here, man. Yeah. I know what that's like. I can't yeah. let you do that but I know what that's like. And how important, (laughs)
1: that That must be so important. And you say also at the beginning of the film that you used movement sort of like for acknowledgement. It feels like it's been your mode of therapy and a way of building self-identity. And the film doesn't talk much about this rollover accident. So I'd love it if you could share that story a little bit because it obviously put you in a place where you didn't have movement anymore.
2: What was that like? I mean, yeah, the, the film alludes to, you know, the first doctor coming in and just basically say, I brought up my love. At the time, I was a, a, a triathlete doing Ironman triathlons and, and that stuff. and pretty passionate about it. Um, and so I brought up this love for, for movement. And yeah, just without missing a beat, he's like, oh, yeah, you're probably going to let that part of your life go, and then walks out to go to his next patient. Um... And that was rough. And I mean, the, the, the injuries were significant. It was, a, it was a rollover accident. It was just me. I was stressed out from a day of teaching. And then the other track coach didn't show up. So I coached the whole team solo. And then I had volunteered to be a representative of my school f- at a district meeting with the superintendent. And being a young teacher, it was like, ooh, this is a big deal. I'm going to be in a room with the superintendent. Um, and so I was kind of hurrying, driving faster than I should. Had forgotten to put my seatbelt on. Caught the shoulder. Um, Roll over, went out my own side window um, and broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, broke this shoulder in two places and completely shredded the LCL and ACL of uh, this knee and had to have it rebuilt.
1: So as somebody who has always sought movement, what was that like? Did you have a, a moment where you had to be still with yourself and were there any learnings from that experience?
2: Well, I guess one that comes right to mind is we tend to phrase everything as, as Americans as I'm a runner or you know it's, it's an identity statement right um, and what I had to go inside and sort of soul search for is that that's not the identity that's it's almost I guess an art metaphor works it's like an artist chooses a medium to express their creativity through whether it's photography or clay or, or uh, any assortment of, of mediums and so what I realized is running and swimming and biking, that's the medium I express my driven nature through, my, my, my ability to dedicate and obsess over things. It's like that's, that's the channel, a healthy channel, instead of an unhealthy one, that I choose to express that through. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a pretty powerful realization from it. Um, another piece that was really difficult to navigate was I would built all of my friendships around movement, right? So I had running friends, I had biking friends, I had swimming friends, and they were still all all out doing badass things, and I was stuck in a chair at home. And that was a pretty difficult space to, to wade through, for sure.
1: Yeah. I love how you just brought up creativity, and I figured we'd talk about this a little later, but maybe we should just go into it now, because the FKT phenomenon is an exhibition of creativity isn't it? It is sort of like an artistic thing where racing, you show up on a start line and you can sort of predict how things are going to go. Obviously, there's variables that you try to control. You have good days and bad days. But with the FKT movement, you have a lot more latitude to be creative and to like use your own vision. Is that something that sort of brought you to the movement or... Like, do you, do you feel more drawn to activities like that than pure racing?
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I don't in any way wanna downplay racing. I do think it serves a very important role because you do sort of offload a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the logistics to the race director. That's what you're paying for. It's like yeah. there's gonna be a, a well-marked course and aid stations and so I'm gonna have things taken care of and I can show up and just worry about my fitness and my headspace. And I think that's an absolutely essential tool. I mean, you saw the in the film. You, you all saw the my office at school and the 140 race bibs on the wall. It's like without that practice of doing work on myself in a controlled environment, something like this isn't possible. So it's like those spaces are absolutely essential. Um, you could call it a school of sort. Yeah. Um, but taking that cerebral and creative element back on myself to figure out the logistics and the route finding um, of routes that had already been done and to sort of reach into the chaos and pull the best possible route for an area, because um, I've created some 40 odd routes as well. Yeah. Um, that process to me is very gratifying.
1: That act of like actually mapping and planning and figuring out where your potential exits are if things go wrong, it's a fun creative thing. And- I think also maybe this creativity thing is exemplified in just like the, this project in particular, right? Like it's not just a pure running thing, it has climbing, rock climbing, glacier travel, bushwhacking, as we saw at the Chilliwacks. How do you, is that an extension of your creativity, that like Swiss Army knife approach to outdoor recreation? And maybe how do you define yourself athletically
2: between all those disciplines? I'm still working on that. I don't have a, a simple answer uh, for what that is. Um, but I don't know, I feel like we are seeing that more where we were very, very focused on sort of specialization and individualization and you know, climbing and in alpine mountaineering and um, running as well. And now it seems like it, perhaps through the movement of FKT, um, and in other places, we're starting to see athletes want to blend those more. Um, maybe it's a certain maturation of each of those sports uh, reaching a certain place. But um, yeah, for me, this, this project was, I mean, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so you know, I looked at what I was drawn to and motivated by um, throughout the 99 prior FKTs and as soon as this Bulgers list came across my radar, it was like, oh, okay, fifth class travel, glacier travel, uh, orienteering, uh, bushwhacking, like all of these things I'd done in doses, but it was gonna be that for 50 days. So it was like, oh man, this is like the perfect cumulative exam. Um, <laughs>
1: Postgraduate.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so in the film, the night before the first peak, it shows you kind of shuffling through some handwritten notes. I'm just curious about that. Like, what's your process for taking the vision in your head and helping it to be like more understandable? Like how do you map these things out? How do you think about it? What were those notes about? And how does it help you sort of think through the challenge at hand?
2: So for this project um it was particularly large. Uh, I'd only ever climbed two of these peaks prior, so there were 98 on-site climbs uh, in this project. I had to come to understand uh, Washington is a temperate rainforest, so like it's not open forest walking. I mean, as you saw that that short clip, it wasn't in my in my experience with it. It wasn't two seconds. It was uh, you know 40 some days of the 50 days involved some amount of time moving through um, that thickness of plant life, sometimes on 60-degree slopes, um, which was interesting. You know, your feet slide out from under you, and you, like, grab a tree next to you, and you're hanging there, and it's like, am I six inches off the ground, or am I six feet off the ground? <laughs> um, we refer to it humorously over there as BW5, because water ice rankings, um, WI5 is, like, pretty dangerous. So we humorously call it BW5 when you're like, I don't know what's below me right now. Um, so there were all of those components. And so what I had to do, and then I mean, also a weird one to have to con- like plan for is, what are the most likely places where fires are gonna break out? Mm. And then I had to like rank, order, what are my risk factors? And it's like, well, fires are catastrophic. If, if a fire breaks out, it's game over. Whole project's done. Um, and so you kind of saw in the video, I swept down the eastern side. It's like I, I planned that out with, uh, over the course of six months of Zoom conversations, phone conversations with uh, prominent Mountaineers. The previous record holder was one of the guys, Eric Gilbertson, he was hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. Some current, just like people who are doing it casually on the weekend, um, ticking through the whole Bulgers list. Um, just so many people had these conversations just week after week and would add it to like a Cal Topo map and like write notes down and uh, like, okay, this peak has a five nine crux and this peak has sustained five seven and oh, then the this person says, this glacier is, you know, I, it would be better to find a way around it, but if you have to, definitely have a partner, because um, it's pretty likely someone will go through. Um, so it was like all of that over the course of six months and penciling it out. And then the final thing you saw me flipping through was sort of the final handwritten notes that I derived from it. I imagine it looked, it would look to someone on the outside, like, you know, those video clips where it's the crazy person with the string on the wall. It's like, that's about what my map looked like. So you saw the, uh, the not crazy person version. Yeah. Um.
1: Yeah, well, maybe I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you crowdsource that stuff from the community, including from the former FKT holder and just the spirit of the FKT movement. But maybe before we get to that stuff, maybe backing up a little bit. When you first learned about fkts maybe talk about the early days now that you're this grizzled veteran you're the king of fkts your partner of course is also fantastic and i want to talk about that in a sec too Um, what were the early days of the fkt movement when you found this niche did it feel like you had really found your calling
2: yeah so you you heard it briefly alluded to it's i didn't start doing fkts because i knew what fkts were i Basically, the one, when the doctor said, okay, you're, you're probably not gonna do this stuff again, I mean, I had to be somewhat literate in how human bodies work to be a PE teacher. I had to take biomechanics and anatomy and all this. And so I knew enough that, I knew my running would come back much more sl- slowly than doing steep climbing, like hiking steep hills. Uh, because you, when, essentially when you go up and down hills, anybody that hikes out around here knows, you kind of keep your knees bent a little bit. You don't have to have that full range of motion. And I, I could only move my knee from maybe here to hear at first. I was like, okay, I mean, the doctor wouldn't recommend it, but yeah. I'll go hike up and down the hill. Um, and so it started with a local hill, and then hill, hills led to local mountains. Pretty soon I was climbing Shasta, which is a 14er there in California. And then I started running into peaks that had technical summit blocks. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna become a rock climber now. And that's led to just an obsession of learning all of the skills with the ropes and the climbing techniques that came along with that. And you know, as I alluded to in the film, during that process of learning a new sport, um, I was doing all the rehab to sort of get the knee back. And as that range of motion came back, um, I realized, hey, I can, I can kind of like, I'm not anywhere near as fast as I used to be, mm. but I can go out and run 20 miles and my knee doesn't swell up like a grapefruit anymore. And it took about two years to really get to that place. Um, and it was like, well, I can now do this technical mountaineering. I'm just gonna go see if I can like pick out three technical peaks that have a long trail run in between them and just go have a, have a hell of a weekend. Yeah. And so it was just like my own passions that led me to it. And then shortly after that, getting out there and doing those sorts of adventures, I came across the FKT website. Um, and it was like, oh, I actually had a route that I'd previously done that I then submitted, ah. um, uh, one linking up Shasta, and it's sub-peak and that was number one? And that was, yeah, it was number one. <laughs> uh, I did it before I even knew what FKTs were. Yeah. Um, but you
1: submitted it, and that became yeah, and it the got inaugural... Accepted what snowballed into uh, an obsession over the last <laughs> couple of years. So cool, so let's talk about Ashley a little bit.
2: Of well, course, she's a superhero.
1: Yeah, we, we all know, all of us who've done these silly races and these big mountain expeditions, FKTs, we know it's a team, team sport. Ashley, I think, has more FKTs than any female on the Fastest Known Time message board, so shout out to Yay! Ashley. <laughs> the king... The king and queen, literally, of the fastest known time movement are in the auditorium tonight. So the next movie's about you, I guess. But maybe talk about your guys' relationship and how you support each other and, and maybe how she supported you on this project.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the, the way our relationship developed was like a series of shared adventures. It was just like, oh, like that went, you know, we met and we went out on an adventure. I think we went rock climbing. And it was like, oh, that went pretty well. Like, Maybe in a couple of weeks, like let's go out and climb something else and just kind of kept that up for a while and pretty soon was like, hey, this is going really well, like maybe let's do this more. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of at the foundation of the relationship was shared passions, you know, a shared vision for what life should look like. And I, I do think that that's essential in a partner. Um, And so it became, because that was at the foundation, it was very natural for us to want to support one another in our development. Um, Over the course of knowing each other, she's become a mountain guide, um, and recently guided on Aconcagua with an all women's expedition company, which is pretty rad. You can give her another round of applause if you want. And so, yeah, it's it's very natural for us, because we both, care about each other and we both care about these experiences of the outdoors and, and see them as sort of essential to the human experience as opposed to just a hobby. Um, so yeah, she was willing to step into this, this role uh, and we didn't fully realize actually, um, I mean, it was a bit of a slap in the face just how difficult the terrain is to move through. Yeah. In the state of Washington, like I kind of had an idea in my head, like as an athlete, like oh I'll be able to move through this section this fast, and then show up, and it's like Washington's like no you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you you think you're that good, but let me sh- let me show you. Yeah. Um, and so her role for resupplies um, became even like more essential. Um, like I'd kind of like written up logistics for like where she could hike in and resupply different points because. The thing about a lot of these peaks is, you, you know, you've heard about the, the one on there with the boat ride for 40 miles in just to get to the start of the bushwhack to then bushwhack for 11 hours to cover seven miles of bushwhacking to get to the Chilliwax. It's like, that was pretty regular. It was
1: occurrence. 11 hours to go seven miles through? 11 them? hours. Oh,
2: my. God. And I, I, was, <laughs> I was probably in shape enough to run like a 530 mile and it took right, 11 yeah. hours to go. <laughs> yeah, seven miles. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that was the nature of the beast. And with that difficult access, sometimes it would have meant, like, okay, I can go in and get these five peaks. And here's another five peaks right here. But it's impossible to, like, do them all in a single day. And it's going to be dangerous, you know, with the glaciers and the fifth-class terrain to, like, try to carry all that weight. But there is a trail that intersects here. And she became the superhero of the effort because she would sometimes backpack... With a camp and resupply gear so that I could nail those five peaks, come down to the trail, have a camp, resupply my food, and then immediately go to the next group of five from there instead of having to come 20 miles out of the backcountry. Um, so, yeah, I, I cannot applaud her role in this enough.
1: Amazing. So cool. So, you know, I read that there's only four of these peaks have a trail to the summit, and you kind of get an appreciation of that in the film. It's almost. It seems like the majority of them you're sort of scrambling or doing some rock climbing to get onto the summit. Maybe paint a little picture for the Colorado audience of what the terrain's like in Washington. What made this challenge unique for those who've never played around in the Pacific Northwest? Because uh, um, it's remote. I mean, we, yeah. you get a, a feel for that in the Chilliwax, but it's a severe landscape
2: so uh i guess i'll just pull a particular uh i guess i'll call it an expedition for so when we went in to do the chelan group uh there's about eight peaks back there and so we had to catch a boat ride 20 miles in roughly to get dropped off um and went in and tagged uh, copper peak which is about 12 miles of road walking um, and then another six miles to get to the peak uh, just uh, with some trail and then uh, a glacier crossing, and then fifth-class climbing. And that was just peak one um, of the group. And then the next day involved uh, crossing two different glaciers, doing a mile of 5'7 to 5'9 kind of razor ridge traversing um, to get between Bonanza and Dark Peak. Um, Also tagged Martin that day. Uh, Had to bushwhack, similar to what you saw, uh, back down to the PCT uh, meet up with Ashley, which actually is a fun story in itself because we were so worked. Uh, basically, I'm just gonna go ahead and tell the
0: story. <laughs> Please, um, I'll put this my is, mic this down. Is one of my favorite stories. Um, Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. So the Bonanza
2: Dark Traverse is just beautiful. I mean, you're in a beautiful position with the Cascades all around you. You're on this razor ridge with just, you know, a thousand feet of air on either side. Um, and Bonanza is one of the, I think it's the, high, the highest non-volcanic peak. So you're, you're up there, you've got a great vantage point. And we get up to that peak after tagging Martin earlier in the morning, and we look at our watches, it's like, oh, we've got three hours of daylight left. Every trip report we've ever read of how long it took a team to cover this ridge was six hours. We've got to go. And so just got into a flow and ended up getting to dark peak right as it got dark. Um, and then had to do the, the, in the fading light, we came down the glacier. You actually saw a short clip of it, kind of that one where you could see my partner out ahead of me with the rope between us and the setting, setting skyline, uh, the f- dusk in the skyline. And... Then we had to do the bushwhack down to the trail in the dark. And it's like the whole time you're off trail and remote, it's like there's this urgency inside you, right, that keeps you awake. The moment we set foot on the PCT, you know that feeling when you're driving along and you shouldn't be driving anymore? It's that, but you're on your feet still moving. And suddenly you, like, wake up as you're drifting off the trail. Um, And we both looked at each other. We thought we had about six miles left to go to get to camp. And it's just like... There is no way, and so we just pff, into the trail, dirt nap, yard sailed our gear around, pulled what we had with us over us. Anyways, fast forward to the next morning, she comes strolling up the trail. You know, hero has you know jet boil to make coffee and some breakfast, and she uh, you know kindly after making us coffee, it's like y'all realize you're only a mile from camp. <laughs> Yeah, you could have slept in the van, (laughs)
1: dude. Come on. Um, Amazing story. Yeah, I mean, I think the wizard guys did a great job of just like showing the majesty of that landscape in Washington. I think it's underappreciated, especially, of course, Coloradans have mountains galore, an embarrassment of riches, but up there in Washington, there's a lot of cool stuff to do. Any particular reason you finished with Rainier, Adams, and St. Helens? I was curious about that.
2: Uh, multiple reasons. So I, I mentioned in the planning phase that my primary uh, risk to avoid was the fire hazards, which is why I started east side and then swept up through the middle and then came furthest west because lowest, lowest fire risk. Also, like a second added benefit to that is uh, I cut my teeth as a mountaineer on volcanoes, volcanoes like McLaughlin and Shasta that are right near where I live They're in Klamath Falls. Um, and so getting to those volcanoes sort of felt like a coming home, like a victory lap, like this is something I totally understand. Um, and that sort of confidence to just yard it out and go all in and just push on the peak and then sleep on the drive to the next peak felt very natural. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the short version of the answer for that.
1: I was wondering, because you summited St. Helens, the 100th one in the dark. I was like, bro, you should have just sat and watched the sunrise for a little bit. <laughs>
2: Well, you saw, you saw what the finishing time was. It was yeah. 50 days, 23 hours, 43 oh, minutes. Oh, you
1: had to get under 51 days.
2: It, well, my original prediction was that it would be possible to do it in 50 days. Yeah. And it just felt too good to make that at least mostly true. Yeah, crazy.
1: <laughs> so I have like a million more questions, but I want to talk, but we, we'll, we'll carry this on a little bit more in Portland next week, but I wanna definitely talk about kind of the state of the FKT movement right now, because a lot of things are changing right now and you're a leader in the movement. So, you know, for those who are here, uh, you may not be familiar, but fastestknowntime.com was recently acquired by Outside and it's one of a number of things, a trend in our sport of bigger companies recognizing the cool, things that people like you do and wanting to be part of it. So maybe i just open up a broad question to you about how you're feeling about the state of the Fastest Known Time movement right now and in what ways you want to sort of be a leader into this next generation.
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, at first there was definitely sort of a little bit of a shockwave that rolled through because it was just this grassroots, community driven um, you know, website you saw Buzz and Peter just did it out of the passion of their hearts. Um, and there was some concern that rolled through, like, oh, man, what if this turns into a giant money machine and kind of loses the spirit in the community? And so a lot of us rallied together. And you know, I kind of, through my connections, got into the new people who are going to be in charge of its acquisition and had some conversations like, hey, what's going on? Da-da-da. Um, and they, they put that at ease, and I think that, that To me is is really important because one of the side effects as well of the car accident is I wasn't in a great space financially coming into that, and it basically financially wrecked me. And I was living out of a six hundred dollars smoking Astro van um, to be able to afford. Because part of me knew it's like no, to be who I am and to be healthy, I have to keep going out and chasing adventures. And there was no way I could afford that if I was you know willing to hold on to those threads of safety and, and normality of continuing to pay rent. Mm-hmm. And so that was my path to both pay down debt and continue to adventure. Um, and so because I, I really actually didn't have much money to say go to a race, and I was able to do these FKTs and, and you know donate, I always tried to donate a few bucks at least, especially early on, um, at least a few dollars. Meaning donate to, to, to the FKT stone. so yep. they could keep the website running, yep. right? Yep. Um, And, because, yeah, that was how it ran back then. Uh, But, you know, that kind of, it stays important to me that it stays on that level to the general public kind of free. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like they're going to keep it, keep it that way. And what they're going to do is add more features and integrate things from other platforms like Gaia mapping features and things of that nature to better the platform so that people can better map their routes and and better show what they're doing. Because, you know, the maps on there. Uh, even still right now, because they haven 't started integrating they 're kind of taking their time to get to know the community first, which I admire. Um, the maps on there right now are just flat, basic like with no functionality, so it 's like you have to go somewhere else if you want to figure out how to actually do the route um, so it'll it 'll be an improvement for sure
1: so you and I spoke on the phone last week or something, but you have like some ideas about things that you would like to see I think the phrase that you used was like, disintermediated racing or... Disaggregated. Disaggregated racing. So maybe talk about that. Like, What do you see as the future for Fastest Known Time? And in what ways do you want to contribute?
2: Um, so, I mean, for example, right now, um, you guys saw Nathan Longhurst. Uh, one of the cool side effects of this to me was he became the youngest finisher of the Bulgers list. He's 21 years old. Well, he's 22 now, but he's 21 when he finished it because he went and, he climbed 65 with me and then went and finished up the others on his own. Um, and he's out right now attempting the SPS list, Sierra Peak Section list, a uh, list of 247 peaks to be the first person to do it in under a year. Um, so yay. Shout out
1: his website real quick because <laughs> yeah. it's
2: insane. sps2022.com. And it does actually dovetail into this conversation because what we built for him is a 3D live tracking platform. So instead of just looking at a flat map where you're watching the dot go across, it's like since he's climbing mountains is the type of FKT he's doing, you can actually see some pretty high resolution 3D mapping and see those data points move through that 3D terrain. Um, So it's like some cool features for how to allow people to see what's really going on out there. Um, and I think I think that's going to become a part of the movement, just better ways of depicting what's going on in these spaces. And then I think what that'll allow for is potentially something, just like throwing something out there, is uh, like an FKT cup of some sort, right? Like, okay, these are the premium routes that are this year's uh, competition. And, you know, people are going to go through and compete and whoever scores the most points on these variety of routes and different people are going to... You know, the, the world is a completely different beast than, you know, the uh, rim-to-rim-to-rim Grand Canyon. Uh, so some people will score in one place, some people will score in another. Um, and potentially there could be prize money involved and sponsors involved. I love
1: this idea. I love this idea and I hope, I hope you guys make it work. And if I can help in any way, let me know. But... Maybe uh, last question before we open it up to the audience here, and I promise Mason didn't tell me to ask this, but maybe uh, talk about Athletic Brewing a little bit. These guys have been freaking awesome. The product is amazing. I've been off the booze for four months now, feel better than I have in my entire life. And uh, it seems like they've been an integral partner for you and sort of made this possible. Talk about that partnership.
2: Well, I'll start off with a story from when Ashley and I were out there, and this, this to me is like enough of a selling point on its own because of who I am and what I care about. Um, you saw that the, the van I ended up in had athletic branding on the side. There's actually a cool story behind that. Right before the Bulgers effort happened, my van blew up, like catastrophic engine failure, totally unexpected. And I was like, I'm gonna try to solve this, like the Bolgers thing is still gonna happen. And they're like, sell it, buy something different, we'll split the difference with you. It's like, what kind of sponsors Like, we're just going to jump in and help to make this thing happen? And so that was, that's a cool story. But then we ended up with this branding on the side of the van, right? Um, people literally came up to us at Trailheads to thank us for athletic brewing, helping them turn their life around. And I'd be like, I'm not the one that made it. I didn't create the product. I'm just an athlete. But that's an awesome story. Thank you for no. sharing. And it's like that alone for me, to, a tool that allows people to make improvements in their life. Is, is absolutely amazing. And to be a part of a movement where, you know, I, I'm a health and PE teacher, right? It's like I talk to kids about decisions they're going to make in their life around the use of alcohol and drugs. And to think that kids I'm teaching right now in, say, kindergarten will grow up in a world where it will be completely normal to walk into a bar and ask for a non-alcoholic option, that'll just be, of course. It's always been that way, right? Um, that's a cool thing to be a part of. Um, so, I guess that, that would say that would sum up my, my stoke.
1: I know so many people who've given up on the booze and uh, made their lives better. And it's, I mean, Mason gave the examples of how the business has grown as a result. So, anyway, really cool. And shout out to Athletic for making this film possible. So, that was an awesome conversation, man, to be continued in Portland next week. To our audience, Raise your hand. Be prepared to shout loudly. Do you have uh, questions for our superstar, Mr. Jason Hardrath? Come on. There we go.
2: Um, in your journey to, 100, to the 100 peaks for your 100th FKT, did you inadvertently set any other FKTs before that, or did you just wait to check on that until after <laughs> your 100? So great question. Um, over the- During during the the process of of doing the Bulgers, I did inadvertently break the record on a few traverses um, of some sets of peaks. Um, So, I guess the 100 peaks wasn't technically my 100th (laughs) (laughs) FKT.
1: Rebrand the movie. (laughs) But spiritually it
0: was.
1: (laughs) I actually thought the same thing. Great question. Let's see. Blue shirt here.
2: So the, the, the 112 that I have are historical, so some of them have been beaten. Um, I don't know that exact number, probably somewhere around 40% of them have been beaten now. Um, which, considering I mentioned like around 40 routes I created, I would actually be a little bit sad if nobody bothered to come along and try to best me, right? It would be, you know, because like we talked about, the, the creativity is part of what I love about this. Um, I don't just want to be A fast athlete. I want to have created routes that bring joy to other people, and so it would have been a little bit of an insult if people were like, "No, that sucks. I'm not going to do that."
1: Beautiful, great answer. Let's see, black shirt, glasses, there. I just wonder how many calories
2: does it take daily to sustain? Did it take to sustain your efforts on your 100? I'm. uh... I'm ADHD and not very organized, so I didn't keep an exact tally, but I would regularly cover Oreos with Nutella and eat the entire package upon returning to the van, and that would be just one of the things I would eat, along with other full-size meals. Um, while I was out there, I would take in um, calories mixed in, my hydration, Gnarly Nutrition is a product I use. Uh, I would always have like, something crunchy like Fritos, Uh, I probably, I mean, Snickers should have sponsored me. I probably ate a thousand Snickers almonds over the course of this thing. It was insane. Um, I'm still finding wrappers in places like, why is this in? Oh, the Bulgers. Um, Yeah, it was a ridiculous number of calories. And I still was losing weight drastically in the early part of the project. I went from 178 pounds, I believe, is what I opened at because I tried to like, gain a little weight prior because I knew this, it was just impossible to take in enough calories over the course of this thing. Um, I think at my lightest, I was down to about my high school weight, which was about 157, 158 pounds. Um, and luckily, it kind of stabilized, and I stopped uh, deteriorating. Um, actually, Ashley was on the stage when I presented this to students in Klamath Falls, and you know, we got asked questions about that, and she expressed like she was worried. She didn't know if, like, you know, she was watching me, like, drastically, like, get smaller each day in front of her eyes, and she's like, uh, oh, what's going to happen here? Um, so, yeah, definitely glad it, glad it stabilized and was able to get into a groove. So, Todd?
1: What's the closest, like, near-death experience that you had going up one of your meetings that literally, like,
2: probably made you There were, I mean, you try to be very careful out there, obviously, but there were three, three close calls, and to keep some mystery, I'll just tell one. Um, when you're traversing across snow and glacier, there are things called snow bridges, where the snow can be melting out from underneath because of, say, a water flow that goes underneath that brings some heat underneath the, the snow structure, and you can never fully tell where those are or how thick they are. Um, unless they've already opened up in one section, you can be like, oh, clearly that's a snow bridge, I shouldn't go there. Um, And I was walking across and ended up on one and it broke out from underneath me. And luckily it was like a big break and so it had some mass to it. So I was able to kind of, as it was breaking, push off and step forward and kind of latch onto the rock that was in front of me. Um, And I like looked to where it fell to and sure enough it was like a waterfall down below and I could have ended up falling maybe 45 feet. Um, so that one was kind of uh, like left me shaken a bit afterwards.
1: Safety first, everybody. <laughs> um, did you do it to get the? Um, did you do it for your? Like, did you do it because you wanted to have fun, or did you
2: do it for the? Um,
1: for like ha- having the top goal. What a great question!
2: That Might is. be the question, yeah. the best question, question of, the night. of the night. I did it because I love climbing mountains, and that is true. I mean, when I said at the early in the film, when I was starting the, the Bulgers effort, like, ugh, life's gonna be so simple for a while, I'm gonna be climbing mountains. It's because I'm still in touch with the fact that the whole reason I do this, like, it's not for the film, it's not for, for all this. I mean, it's cool, I'm get, I have a chance to speak to people now and impact their lives, like, that's awesome. But the reason I went out to climb mountains is because I genuinely, love climbing mountains, and the thing I looked forward to each day was not finishing the project and being done with it. It was, oh man, this mountain has this epic glacier I get to go across, and it's going to be beautiful, and I'm going to see this blue ice and this great view, and then I get to climb this rock up to the top. Um, Some days I got to climb through the clouds and be above the clouds and only see the other peaks. Like, that's why I'm doing it, is for those experiences. What finishing it quest. did feel good, but it was way better to be out there doing it.
1: You totally get that feeling in the film, too, just thinking of the moment where you're waking up with the mosquito net over your face. You're like, it's 5.30 a.m. I get to go climb some mountains today. <laughs> feel it, probably. Did you have a question there? Somebody in this area? Go ahead, yeah. Uh, did you have any and if you did, how many did you
2: have on the could, could you ask that one more time? Wow. He's, he's teeing that one up for us. <laughs> Mason
1: planted the question in the audience. Yeah.
2: Mason, you better give him 20 bucks. Um, actually, yeah. Uh, one of the cool things is I could have a hanker. I mean, one of, the, one of the big things with a project like this, obviously, is your body recovering enough to not just continuously deteriorate. And sometimes, yeah, like I don't just want sweet things. Like Sometimes you eat so many, you know, I mentioned the Snickers bar. You eat so many sweet things in a day, you just don't want that flavor anymore. And so having a cool, refreshing, like bitter flavor of an IPA at the end of a day or in the middle of a day and still like being able to drive to the next peak, still being able to go back out to climb the next thing. Actually, yeah, I did drink some and it was pretty awesome to be able to be like, oh, I can indulge and continue.
1: Placebo. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. My question is just about um,
2: how. What were the most difficult things? So I'm hearing a lot of your story is about like the achievement of it, and, the, and so I was also wondering about how your body changed. And you already answered that, but, um, yeah, some of the deeper like, what are the hardest things about FKTs? About this kind of life for you? Well, I mean. <laughs> Obviously, any, any ultra race you run or any, any mountain you climb, you're going to have those low points that you go through um, where you question your training and you question whether it's going to work out or if you're going to drop out. Um, and to, to face those sometimes when those things go wrong in the deep backcountry, country, um, those can be some difficult moments to wade through. Um, for example, we were uh, a day into the backcountry um, for a group of peaks, a group of eight peaks, and that was the one where you saw I was crossing that really uh, fast running creek, the wide creek. Um, it was running like a whole half, like a time and a half higher than it normally was running um, when people would go to do those peaks. And being out there, and one of the, what happened is uh, I was wearing a set of shoes that had a solid heel cup, And I really liked the shoes and and I'd run uh, like 50 milers out of the box in them and they'd been fine. But what I didn't account for is that solid heel cup touching into the back of my Achilles tendon when I was constantly climbing these 60 degree um, slopes and, and steeper. And so slowly it impinged the bottom of my Achilles tendon. And now I didn't have clairvoyance to know that that's what it was. All I got to feel is like, okay, my Achilles tendon is swelling up. I'm getting pain with every step, just like piercing pain. And the first thing that comes to mind is, am I tearing my Achilles tendon from my heel bone right now? Like that's a, an injury that happens to people in their 30s. Like am I doing that? Um, and so I had to like contemplate through this as I'm a day away from you know, the nearest exit. And luckily, you know, I I started troubleshooting and um, I kicked the heel down and just started walking on it like we all do when we're lazy in the morning to go get our cup of coffee. And the pain went away. It's like, okay, it's just the impingement. It's not a problem with the tendon. But then I had the problem of now for however long it takes for the swelling to go away while still doing between... 8 and 25 miles and 5,000 to 20,000 feet of vert a day, how long does it take for a swollen Achilles tendon to go down? And so what I had to do is I had to cut a V into the back of every pair of shoes um, and just basically have a have this big cutout that would sit around my Achilles tendon and just keep going. Um, so I guess that maybe kind of answers some of what you were talking about.
1: Ouch. Any more? Here we go. 2020, um, was your goal to get to Hunter earlier or sooner before everything changed in March
2: 2020? 2020 was interesting, like already being in it and it was already kind of my lifestyle. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess the most most distinctive thing that happened is I kind of had this whole mapped notebook of like 140 different options I could potentially beat the record on. Um, And what happened is... (laughs) I started having to like cross a lot more of those off because other people were just going out and like ticking them off. And it's like, okay, you know, I run the numbers based on my current fitness. Like this is how fast I can run uh, on flatland right now, roughly. This is how my vertical ascent rate right now um, at such and such heart rate, which means this is theoretically possible or theoretically I would need to train a lot longer to be able to do this one. Um, it made the game, the chess game, a lot more complicated because suddenly there were a lot more players. And so the game was constantly getting harder as I played it. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting change, but it wasn't like it was unwelcome. It's like, okay, more people are doing this thing now. Um, more, more is better, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, it did change everything for the past known time. Buzz Burrell said so on my podcast. He said the pandemic changed everything and brought so many people into this movement. And it's at least one silver lining from... God forsaken two years, but <laughs> knock on wood, it seems like we're doing better now. Question in the back. Yeah, um, if you had an opportunity to do this again, uh, what is the biggest thing that you would change about how you approached
2: it? Great question. You know, I would... I think I would treat the people around me even better than I did. There were times where I got beat up and tired and stressed out, and I was less than a great person to them, and they had to deal with that when they themselves were tired and worn out, and that's no fun for anybody. And so I would say if there was one thing I would change, I would be a little better person in those moments.
1: Beautiful answer, too. Mason, how are we doing on time? Any other questions before we get to the raffle? There we go. Here's one. I'm curious what your next goal or
2: project is. i uh, got a couple on the horizon. Um, the big one that's coming up, shortest term, is uh, a fellow named Sean O'Rourke, who's kind of a, a legend known as Dr. Dirtbag in the Sierra. Um, he and I arrived at this same idea um, separately and then had a conversation and we're like, We just had the same idea, does this mean we're doing it together? Are we best friends? Are we best friends? (laughs) Um, And so what we both realized, and if there's someone in here who can do it before us, I guess, good luck, um, is there's this traverse called Norman's 13, and it's kind of like Nolan's 14, it's all of the 14ers of the Sierra range. But what both of us had separately realized is if you break the record for this technical traverse, of these Sierra 14ers, the 13 of them, when you come out the exit trailhead, you're ahead of the record for the California 14er by bike, even though you haven't biked between all of them using the road. And so if you just leave a bike there and get on the bike and go bike the 420 miles to tag the last two peaks in California, you get two records in one effort.
1: So this summer, I did the traverse between Langley and Mount Whitney. That alone, like, nearly put me in the hospital. So the, this, what, what is it called again? Norman's 13? Norman's 13. Gosh. Psychopath. <laughs> any more Any more questions for, for Jason? Here we go. What is your training look like your training?
2: Right now, it's... Uh... A little bit bike oriented because during the, there were very few of these FKTs that were very bike heavy over the course of the hundred. Um, and so I'm kind of realizing, like, okay, if I'm going to be ready for um, some of these, you know, like the 420 miles of this um, effort, I'm kind of leaning into that. Um, and then, yeah, logging, still logging maybe between 40 and 60 miles on foot with between 8,000 and maybe 12,000 feet of vert in a week, and then just logging as many bike hours as I can, which has been a lot of trainer hours because winter keeps intermittently happening in the PNW.
1: You're a Swiss army knife. Biking, climbing, running, mountaineering, glacier travel. Uh, Two more questions before we go to the, the raffle. Any more hands? Here we go.
2: You know, people always bring that up because a lot of people really love skiing. I guess my thought is I, I can ski well enough, but it's always, I, I enjoy moving uphill and downhill in the mountains on foot just well enough. It's like I don't derive that much more pleasure personally from it. So I kind of think when I hit that point where my knees start to hurt too much, suddenly the skiing will become a much bigger part, part of my life.
1: Isn't Nathan's uh, SPS record that he's doing right now? He's doing a lot of skiing. On yeah, those peaks. he chose
2: to he chose to ski the whole front end of yeah. do a bunch of classic ski lines on the Sierra because he's a an amazing skier. Yeah.
1: This is one of the things that I think is exciting about the future of the FKT movement is implementing more bike to run, ski and run, and you know, just a lot of different modalities as opposed to just Everything on foot.
2: Well, the whole thing that makes it interesting is the creativity, and then like having to problem solve the optimal season. So it's like you add more sports in there. Like if you're gonna ski and pack raft, like that's a pretty narrow band of making a decision for an optimal season.
1: That's why I love this FKT cup idea, because it's like you pick the sequence in which you do the FKTs. You pick the, you hope to pick the right day. It adds a whole other level of complexity to it. I love this idea. We got to work on that. One more. Kevin Wolf, shut us down. Yeah, so you mentioned you were into triathlons before of running, biking, and swimming. Which one do you
2: hate the most? <laughs> Easily swimming. <laughs> it, was my, it was my weakest discipline, and in part because I skipped swim workouts to get on the bike more.
1: <laughs> okay, thank you guys so much for your questions. Mason, we're ready for the uh, raff- there he is. <laughs> all right all right all right guys big round of applause for Jason Hardrath for our filmmakers
2: stand up filmmakers and Ashley too Ashley you stand up too
1: Thanks so much for coming out. I hope everybody drives home safely with those non alcoholic beers in your stomachs. And uh, have a great week.
0: First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com and until then get out there and have some fun